real privilege to, um, to have uh, Anne Walker and Kathleen Gillespie uh, with us tonight. Um, I first heard, well, I'd heard Kathleen's story, I suppose, but I, 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 the first time I met you, Kathleen, was in, in Lurgan, and I was at Lurgan Town Hall at an event where three or four victims of the Troubles shared their stories. And I remember hearing um, Kathleen's and just being totally bowled over and, and just a sense of um, like I was in the presence of a, a, little, a kind of a saint in an unlikely, uh, unlikely um, uh, garb. But you were, you were um, amazing. And I remember thinking, I need, we need, the world needs to hear more. And then I heard Kathleen and Anne speaking together and it almost made it all the more powerful. So I'm not gonna really introduce their stories. I'm gonna let them tell their stories. So um, I think Kathleen has asked that Anne goes first. I've told her. Yeah, she's going first. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anne, over to you. Tell us your story. Right. Um, well, I suppose I'm, I'm going to start by telling us why both me and Kathleen are here together on stage. Um, we both had an incredible opportunity 12 years ago, now we're doing this 12 years, to get involved with um, an American lady called Taya Sepinuk who, who had built the concept Theatre of Witness. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. But Theatre of Witnesses, um, she brings people together from diverse backgrounds who would never be in the same room or never want to have a conversation with each other, more than likely have been enemies. Or, and she brings you through a process. You eventually go on stage after 10 months to, to 12 months and we then would take our stories all over Northern Ireland. Um, and I, I met a, a friend, I've had a, a a life, I've had a life. Um, and it struck me earlier on whenever the lads were singing the song, I wish you good times, I wish you bad times, I wish you joy, I wish you pain. Um, and it, there's no coincidences in life because when Rami was speaking as well, we were with a group of kids earlier on today and it was absolute bedlam. And they were kids from all sides of the community and all colors and diverse. And both of you, when the singers were up and when Rami was speaking, I was like, oh my God, uh, it's all coming together today. It's the same stuff. Um, but a friend of mine actually says to me, it was one of my darkest times, and there's been a few, and he knew I was having a rough time. He asked me to go along and tell my story to Taya. He knew a bit of it. So he thought that it would do her production good to have me in it, but he also thought it would do me good. And I went along and spoke to Taya, or tried to speak to Taya because I couldn't, because I cried so much. And the first three times I met Taya, I cried. And some bits and pieces of my story came out. She went back to my friend and said, I don't think I'm strong enough for this. And she came to me and she said, I don't think you're strong enough for this. But also Kathleen Gillespie is going to be in this production. And if she can't work with you, you're out. Because she wanted Kathleen in. And the reason I was... <laughs> Did, did she do that? She did, yes. I um, and the reason that I found it so hard to tell my story was because I had grown up through the worst of the troubles. Bloody Sunday began my story. We were living in Wales, my mum and daddy, and me and my sister, I was three and she was two. We were, my daddy was in the RAF. We were about to be stationed in Hong Kong. Bloody Sunday happened and all of our futures changed. 
So we grew up in the worst of the troubles. We came back to Derry. We grew up in the bog side. We grew up in a single identity story in a, a city that was full of pain and poverty and bad housing and um, trauma. And it became our normality. But I grew up through that, through that and through house raids and through British Army and RUC intimidation, through seeing people arrested, through going to many funerals. And anybody that's grown up through the Troubles, you know what I'm talking about. But for some people in the Troubles, it didn't affect the same way. I would say a lot of times that sometimes it can literally be geography and circumstance. So when I was 18 years old, a friend of mine approached me and he asked me to join the IRA. And I didn't hesitate, and I became a quartermaster in the IRA. And this was the story that I was telling Taya Epinock, the story that I tried to tell her. But eventually, she would show me some of her previous work, um, and I would get more of my story out, and I knew, watching her work, there was a power in it. There was a fear in what she was doing as well, because if I was going to get involved in this, people that I loved and knew and who thought they knew me, would see it different me. They would see the secrets that I'd been hiding for years, and many of them. I would eventually get out of the IRA at an early age. There's a long story in this, and we don't have a long time, and Kelly has a lot to say. Um, but eventually, Taya would say, okay, Anne, you, you're, you're going to be on this production, and I was so relieved. Um, and we... She did all the interviews separately, and then she brought us all together. So she brought six women. There was eight women that day. Six of us moved forward. Six women together. And in this room of six women, and Taya and a couple of other people, we had tea and sandwiches. We'd broken bread. We'd gone out for cigarettes with each other. But none of us knew who each other was. I knew who Kathy was. But what I did know was that in this room, I was the IRA woman. There was a loyalist woman from the Shankill, a uh, unionist woman from Enniskillen. Um, there was a servant police officer woman and Kathleen Gillespie. And there was a woman from the Falls Road who I thought at least I have one ally, but she didn't even speak until the next time we met. Um, and I was terrified that these women would not want to work with me. They wouldn't want to hear what I had to say and they wouldn't want me being there. Um, but I was mostly afraid of Kathleen because I thought if I tell my story in front of this woman, how is she going to cope with what I have to say? And how am I going to cope with what I have to say? And Kathleen will explain later. Because Kathleen went through a horrendous atrocity and she'll tell you about that herself in a minute. But what happened after Taya decided that I should tell my story first, um, and there, there's a thinking behind that that I'm finding out about now. And I did. And I watched the other women in the rest of the room. And through my story, I cried. I let out a lot of secrets, um, and a lot of tears, a lot of snutters. And when I finished telling what I could of my story, I looked straight at Kathleen. And my thoughts in my head were, whatever this woman has to say, whatever this woman has to do, I'm going to take it. And the next thing she did, set us up for the best 12-year friendship because she came over and she hugged me and she says, we're going to be okay. There was, it wasn't forgiveness. She, did, she wasn't there to forgive. 
And I didn't come into this for forgiveness, but it was a moment of grace that set not just us up, but the women that we work with in that production, the previous production, and any of the productions since that have produced people from diverse stories in the Troubles, including ex-RUC, ex-PSNA, ex-victims, or victims and survivors, ex-IRA, ex-UDA, ex-opposing combatants, um, and ex-British soldiers. And over the past 12 to 14 years, we've been taking our stories and bringing them into communities and into shared education. Worked across the world, we'll tell you more about that, but we've taken it everywhere and people have watched us, heard us and listened. We believe that we plant seeds. We're not trying to change people's opinions, but we're trying to show what's possible when you have those challenging conversations and we allow for those moments of grace. Um, so it's an absolute, John is saying thank you so much for coming. But I was just looking forward to getting down here because I get to spend two hours in the car with Kelly on the way down, two hours back, and the crack's great. Uh, um, and we have the, the friendship. And what I think one of the things that we want people to see when we do our workshops, and they're normally about two hours, we show videos and all, but we want people to see the relationship, the relationship that has come, even though the circumstances and the pain is unbelievable. And that's where the power is. That's where the healing is. And it's come from pain. So I'm going to let Kelly talk now. <laughs> you didn't talk as long as I thought you were going to talk. Well, there's a lot of stuff in there that I'm not going to repeat. Mm -hmm. Because Anne has said a lot that I don't need to tell you. Anyway, um, my husband, 30 years, 32 years ago, my husband was murdered by the IRA. He was used as a human bomb. I don't know if any of you's heard of the human bomb at Koshkwan. He was kidnapped from our home at midnight. We had been held from 10.30. And he was kidnapped from our home and taken away while I was left with our children at gunpoint with the remainder of the gang. Uh, what they did was they took Patsy from home at midnight. And I'll explain to you why Patsy was targeted. The IRA have said that my husband was a legitimate target of war. And I have never had that the opportunity to explain, to have that explained to me. I know in my heart why. Because he ignored all their warnings. He, he said he wasn't going to let them tell them what to do. But he was a civilian worker in a local army camp, employed and paid by the Ministry of Defence. So that was their reason for naming him a legitimate target of war. At the end of the day, um, we lived in a, a quiet spot where they had plenty of chances to come and go as they wanted. We had our own car, we, you know, so they wouldn't have been seen moving around, but uh, they took Patsy away. And um, in the course of the four hours between midnight and the explosion, they chained him to a van. And it must have been so obvious to Patsy that he was not getting home again. Uh, he was chained so that he couldn't get out. Um, and he was forced to drive from across the border where they were 
where they spent that four hours, to the army checkpoint at Kashkwan, where the bomb was detonated by remote control. Um, I have evidence, uh, which I heard at the inquest, of um, remaining soldiers who survived the bomb, that my husband saved their lives because he uh, shouted a warning and um, he shouted, run boys, I'm loaded. That's not exactly what he said. My, my, my husband loved the F word. <laughs> so <laughs> that was in that. Was in that. Um, so after that, um, we had three children. My husband was murdered on our, 18th, our eldest son's 18th birthday. And I had a son of 16 and a daughter of 12. So I had to find my way to look after them. And my boys were at an age where I was terrified that they would be persuaded to join up to get retribution. And uh, I, I, I didn't know how I was going to keep them away from that, but I did. You know, it happened 32 years ago, and my eldest son was 18, so he's going to be 50 this year. My son's going to be 50. My God. <laughs> I, I, can't, I just can't believe I've got a son of 50. You know, um, and it was my daughter's 44th birthday yesterday, but... Um, and you only realised last year that you were a single mother all these years? I did. I was doing, we were doing this, this course, and uh, with this exercise to do, where each, each division got a different subject to um, talk about. And while I was listening to the table behind me, up came the, the word, they, they talked about a single mother, and I thought, that's me. I'm a single mother. I, I, I had never thought of myself as a single mother because I feel that Patsy's there with me all the time anyway. So I'm still his wife. I won't let anybody call me a widow because I'll always be Kathleen Gillespie. I'll never be anything else, and I'll be Patsy's wife all the time. Now, she has put me on a different train of thought. <laughs> now, see, I you have to realize I'm a lot older than her, and she forgets that my memory is not the best. So I've gone off the train of thought. No, I had to find a way to look after my children. And then somebody said to me, well, you're looking after them. Who's looking after you? So I began to investigate different things. I started working for the church, you know, making tea. And they would have phoned me if they had a confirmation or anything. going on, will you come and make the teas? Catherine, we do this, do that, do the other. I did that for a while. And I said, I can do more than that. So I started to investigate any groups that were going around. And I'll tell you this much, I have a shitload of certificates that I could paper the walls with. <laughs> so I have. I'd done all this training, and I went up and down to Glen Cree. I worked within the peace and reconciliation sector. And I went up and down to Glen Cree with a group called LIVE, L-I-V-E, Let's Involve the Victims' Experiences. I did that for nine years until the usual thing happened. They ran out of money. They ran out of funding. And uh, then I met up with uh, this American lady. I got a phone call one night, and um, I was searching for something to do, you know, because I had all these qualifications, and, you know, I, c I, could, I could talk the hind leg of a donkey. I might as well tell you now. I have them warned that I can talk plenty. But... I got a phone call one night inviting me to a premiere of a 
a show in the theatre that night, the next night. And they said the reason that they wanted me to come was because there was a policeman there and he was discussing uh, what his part in the clear-up after the bomb. And they didn't want me walking the street and somebody saying they were talking about your husband in the playhouse last night. So I went to see it. And I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I couldn't believe what the bravery of these people who all stood up in front of a crowd that, okay, there were dairy people, but they didn't know who was going to be there. And they told all their secrets in front of these people. And this policeman told about when he was in the clear-up uh, in the aftermath of the bomb where he found, lifted a stone and he found a heart and he lifted another stone and he found a bum cheek. And it was years later when I was working with this particular policeman that I got the chance to ask him and clear something up in my mind because I, all our coffins were closed. There were five soldiers along with my husband blown up that night. So there were six closed coffins. And I wanted to know, uh, did I have all of my husband in that coffin or did I have bits of everybody? And what, what the question I asked him was, um, at the time of the death, was the DNA working sophisticated enough to separate the parts of the bodies? And he said, no, Kathleen. And I says, that's all right, as long as I know. Because I have a bigger affinity with my husband at Koshkwan, where the bomb, bomb took place, than I do at the cemetery. And when I'm making up flower arrangements for the memorial, I do five yellow roses for the soldiers and one red rose for my husband in the arrangement. So I was fine. I just needed to know the answer to that question. And he was able to do that for me. But anyway, going back to the premiere that I was invited to that night, uh, I just was gobsmacked. I really was when I listened to everybody. And uh, then it was a QA afterwards. My hand was up first. And the boy in the mic knew me and he says, We'll get you, Kelly. I'm sorry, we'll get you. <laughs> I was very, uh, I was just all jizzed up, you know, about it. It was, it was unbelievable, the stories up there getting told. So anyway, I, I got up and I thanked them all for what they did and I congratulated them on their courage and what they did. And then I, I was introduced to Taya, the lady, the American lady who did all the writing. And I told her who I was, and uh, I said she told me that she was looking for six ladies to do an all-female an, an all cast. And I said, well, keep me in mind. I'd like to be a part of this. Now, what do you hear what she done then? She went down to the green room, and she went, I've got Kathleen Gillespie on board. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. But anyway, that's, uh, that's beside the point. We started rehearsals. Anna's told you all this already, and she's told you what happened, so I'm not going to repeat that. But I'll tell you, it was nerve-wracking going up on that stage because I was the oldest one there. I had the longest script. There were no prompters, and she wouldn't allow us to take any notes on stage. So it had to go all in there. And I couldn't believe that I was going to be able to remember all of this. And she says, Karen, don't worry about it. 
It's your story. You know what you have to tell. And the people out there don't know what's coming next. They don't know if you miss something, if you skip something. But we get through it. And then we did 15, wasn't it 15, oh, 15 productions all over Northern Ireland, and we did one in Letterkenny. And um, then Taya had to go, Taya had done another couple of productions, and then she had to go back to Philadelphia. So we decided, what are we going to do? What's going to happen from here on in? Because we didn't want to forget about it. It was too important to forget about. And people were talking about Anne and I working together. People were coming up to me and saying, how can you bear to work with that woman? You know, and I just, she was, she was so good to me. She was, I'll tell you a wee, a wee quick story. I had a very bad fall a couple of years ago outside her house, trapped on her doorstep. And I grabbed a, a, a seat bench leg as I was going down, falling forward thinking that it would stop my fall, but it didn't. I just went straight on, and the arm went right above my head. This is why this arm's kind of half working and half not. And um, I had uh, a spiral fracture of the humerus. Uh, halfway through surgery, they thought they were going to have to amputate my arm. Thank God they didn't. I wake up every morning and say, thank you, Jesus, for letting me keep my arm, even though it's not working properly. You know, it's, I, at least I can drive now. I had an 18 month recovery time. I was in rehab for eight weeks. This hand doesn't close. I can work these two, the finger and thumb, this hand, I have to push it, won't close. The arm won't straighten and the arm won't go up above here, but I'm driving. I can drive now because with the right hand, you don't do a while lot when you're driving except hold the steering wheel, so I'm grand. But during that, during that 18 months, that I was recovering, I, I would have been lost without that woman. She drove me everywhere. We did a lot of Zoom calls during COVID in different places, and I don't do social media, so she's my, I always say she's my unpaid PA. She does all my social media stuff. She drove me everywhere, you know, and she was so good to me. I, I, I would have been really lost without her. So the work that we're doing now, uh, we, we've done work for the United Nations and we've been to New York and Connecticut and Utrecht, Utrecht and London. London and... In international Zoom. Aye, <laughs> all over the place and, and we've done a lot of documentaries together. So uh, I'm going to stop talking now because I think I've talked enough. <laughs> uh, just to say that uh, I appreciate the stuff that Anne does for me. And you see the people that... Uh, I have no... Um, I do not forgive what happened to my husband, and I'm not afraid to say it. And I have made myself happy with that. Not Maybe not happy, but content with the fact that I cannot forgive them. But people ask me if one of the men came to my door who were in my house that night and asked for forgiveness, what would I do? I said, first of all, I would let them know I wasn't going to forgive them because it's only for their own gratification they want forgiveness. I've come to terms with God and uh, what I want to do about it. But I would bring him in and I would make him a cup of tea or coffee or whatever he wanted, but I would expect him to explain to me why he thought it was okay to sit down and plan the horrendous death that they gave my husband. So thank you for listening.
Thank you. And do you want to say something? Do you want to say something? Are we, are we still on yet? Um, so, myself and Kathleen are two of, of a large number of participants that have done this work, and we've connected and networked with similar people across the world, um, people that want to affect change by the challenging stories, the deep listening. Um, and and it is it can be difficult, but that short moment of pain and terror that I spent in that room telling my story has led to 12 years of um, the most incredible power and peace and healing for me. And um, and I'm, I'm selfish in that. Um, but I've, I see it in all the rest of the people that we work with, and I see it in the workshops and where, where we do them, wherever we do them, we plant seeds and we walk away and hope that those seeds will be nourished uh, with, with further work. But recently, the, we got together as participants in the Theatre of Witness through the Playhouse and we um, drew up a module that's going to go into the shared education school so teachers will be able to choose whether to bring Theatre of Witness in on a bigger scale. And instead of just doing one-off workshops, we'll be going with a series of workshops and bring people forward listening to all sides, not just a single story. Um, but what I, what I will say as well is that whenever I went home, when Taya said, okay, you're in, and I went home and I said to my parents, I'm going to be in a production on stage, and they were like, yay. And I sat them down and I says, mom and daddy, I'm going to be telling them stuff like abuse and domestic violence and the fact that it was in the IRA. And they were both devastated and angry and hurt. And they'd never known. They hadn't known a lot of the stuff that I would stay on say on stage. Um, and it was very hard for them. And they didn't want me to, to support me in doing that, out of fear as well, but absolute devastation that their daughter had been in the IRA. And I had to sit down, I was 42 years of age, and my sister's in the audience, and this is amazing for me because it's, I don't get to do this much in front of family. But um, I had to sit down at 42 and say, do I do this for me, or do I not do this for my parents? And my mother was an incredible woman, but she had a lot of reasons to be angry. A hell of a, her whole life had changed, and she brought six of us up through the troubles, as well in de as dealing with the pain from her own brothers and sisters through Bloody Sunday. And I was really worried about how she would see me. But I made the decision to do this for me, and it is definitely one of the best decisions I ever made. It's changed my, my life and the way I look at the world. Um, but three years later, they didn't come to any of the productions. My sister and two sisters and brother did. But three years later, the documentary of our story came on television. And I thought, I'll flip. And I phoned my mommy and I says, Mommy, don't be channel surfing tonight because this documentary is going to be on. And, and my thinking behind this was I didn't want her to be hurt. I didn't want her to hear things that she didn't want to hear. And I also didn't want her to see the fact that I had brought the documentary people into her house for a bit of filming because I was living in a shitty flat and I didn't want them in there. <laughs> I was going to get caught. Like, uh, and I, I didn't want to be caught all sides. So I had phoned her and I'd giving her the call, but I went down the next day. I went into the living room and my mommy's sitting there on her own. She had her arms folded and she said, I watched that last night, you know? And I thought, oh, flip. 
sort of braced myself for the what I believed was common, which would be, a, are, are you stupid? Are you are you you're going to get yourself in trouble? And people are going to hurt you. But the next thing she said was, I didn't protect you. And I had oh, my whole being sank in the chair. And it was the like, the, it was a moment of vulnerability that I hadn't seen in my mother. And my mother to me was always the strongest person I'd ever known. And that moment changed our relationship because we were able to speak about the difficult stuff. We were able to ask, she was able to ask me questions and I was able to answer truthfully. Um, and we talk a lot about strength and vulnerability throughout our work. Um, and that she became one of my biggest supporters and one of my biggest encouragers. And the last thing my mummy would say to me anytime I was going to a workshop or going to America or going anywhere or speaking to the other side, you just do the best that you can. Don't trust anybody and you'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> but she, she was powerful right up until the day that she passed away before Christmas. And we missed her loads. But I get to tell that story and that's a blessing. But I know my sister's in the room and the beautiful fun and it's great to have you here. But what we have gained out of doing this work as well is new families, a new tribe, friendships that will last forever. Beside me is my best friend, one of my biggest encouragers and one of the people I love to spend most of my time with. Because it's just the, the barriers that you can overcome with honesty and truth. And even though it's the scariest place to start, the ex-UDA man, when he talks about walking to the playhouse three times and walking away and nearly not making it back the fourth time to do his piece, even the RUC man has fear and trepidation. And some of the people in that we have, and at the minute we have 38 stories and 38 new videos from every side of the Troubles. And we often go and talk and have conversations and sit beside people and people say, people who you would never think can say, I relate to that and you end up having a conversation. People come to me and say, I came here to hate you. And they do, they come walking into rooms, especially when there's ex-combatants or ex-police, and they come in all charged up going, I'm not going to listen to what this one says. But they're disarmed with the truth by the time they leave. And we're not telling people what they have to do or what they have to think or what they have to believe. We're just showing possibilities in friendship and truth. And I'm going to stop there. Kathleen, um, thank you, and, and Kathleen, that's it's very powerful. I just wonder, maybe just towards the end, I, I remember when your husband was killed, you know, and um, I'm sure probably half of the room here remembers that, and um, can you tell us a little bit about what Patsy was like? What kind of character was he? Uh, telling me on the way down the chart, tell telling yeah. him everything. <laughs> he tormented my mother. <laughs> my mother adored him, as I did. When I was growing up, I, I, I didn't. I was at college, and I, I, I wasn't interested in college. I wanted to get married and have my own family and have a nice man, day and a wee house, no. So that's what I ended up with. Our first child that was born was a full-time stillbirth, and we were both. We had waited. I thought we'd waited too long. He wasn't born. We were 15 months married before he was born, and I thought that was a while. At the, and them days, I mean, I was only 20, and it was 1970. 
And I thought, once you get married, you get pregnant and had a baby, and that was it. Mm. And when I had a bit all these months, I couldn't believe it. I was crying and so I married it. I perhaps had his heart broke, thinking there was something wrong with me. But anyway, eventually, and we had then, a, I had a, another son 11 months later, Patrick, and Kieran was born 14 months after that, and I was told not to have any more because I had very difficult pregnancies, very difficult births. And... Uh, but I, Patsy wouldn't let me try again for another child. But I wanted to try and give him a daughter because I knew that he craved a daughter. And five years later, he let me try. And we did. We had a daughter, our daughter Jennifer, that was 44 yesterday, <laughs> my baby. But Patsy was, um, Patsy didn't run, go out to the pub at night at all. I was a runner in the family. But my running was keep fit. I went to keep fit five nights a week. And Patsy stayed in and watched the winds. And uh, he just, he was so, um, do you know, it's not, I'm not putting him a pet on a pedestal. He's a bad wee shite sometimes. <laughs> you know, he wasn't good all the time, but he was good. He was a good husband. And he was great at doing the housework. I was telling Anne, the only things, he was a great cook. And the only things he wouldn't do was iron or make the beds. He cleaned the kitchen, he cooked, he washed up. Oh, he was bloody great, so he was. And uh, it left me a lot more free time. And he would have took the wings. He, would have, he didn't take, he wouldn't wheel the pram when the boys were babies. See, when Jennifer was a baby, I wasn't allowed to wheel the pram. Or when I, I worked two nights a week in a supermarket from five to nine, and he used to land up halfway through the night with her up in his arms, dressed up in her frilliest dress. If he didn't like what I had on her, he changed her. You know, it's just, he was a great family man, you know, and uh, he gambled a wee bit. I would say that was nearly his only fault, you know, and he, he used to say to me, uh, he would give his right arm to keep me happy. And I said, I don't want your right arm, I just want you to stop gambling. <laughs> you know, but we managed okay. I had to take charge of all the finances because of that, so that worked out okay, because I'm a bossy bitch anyway. <laughs> so, um, but uh, <laughs> they call me the queen at work. <laughs> they call me the queen. But no, Patsy was, um, when we went, we had to choose where we went when we went out socially. We had to go among people that we knew and who knew what Patsy was doing, because she didn't go out at night and say to a stranger, I work in the army camp. Do you know, I'm, I'm a civilian worker. You, well, you all know you couldn't do that. Um, all our children knew was that uh, their daddy was a cook in the camp. They didn't, there was no details given or anything. And I remember one day Patsy's car had broken down and he phoned for me to come and get him in my car. We, we ran two cars out of necessity, not because we were wealthy enough to afford them. But uh, I went in to get him. I took Jennifer with him, and he worked in the officer's mess. And he set her up at the table, and he gave her a... I can't remember what the first thing was he gave her, but he gave her a dish of ice cream. And you would have thought she'd never seen ice cream in her life. You know, this was the best ice cream going, and told everybody about getting ice cream at her daddy's work, you know. But 
everybody, um, I have a friend now that I met after Patsy died, and she always says to me, I, don't, I wish I hadn't known Patsy, because she says, I think I would have loved him. And she would have. Everybody loved Patsy was, as I say, it was a bad wee article sometimes, you know. It tormented me mommy, tormented her. I was telling, I'll tell you a wee story. I'm sorry if I'm keeping <laughs> we, we were driving up the Glenchian Pass. <laughs> and I was telling Anne that we, we had, uh, this was before me and Patsy were married, and we were taking my mammy looking for an outfit for the wedding. And up the Glen, halfway up the Glenchian Pass, she had to pee. So she got out of the back seat, and she opened the back passenger door and sat down there so the door would hit. Patsy drove off and left. It <laughs> 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 didn't go very far, like he only went the length of the car, but he exposed her to the oncoming traffic. <laughs> but she loved him. She she loved him so much. And he used to he used to he used to do things to her. And I'll not tell you half the things he done to her, but he loved her boobs. He used to do that. He used to grab her like that. And if there was anybody in, she would have said, Kathleen, speak to him, speak to him. <laughs> but if there was nobody in, she would have said, oh, Betsy, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but she, she, I adored Patsy. I definitely did. There's no point in saying I didn't. I had no reason not to. He was a good man. Loved his wins and, you know, my, one of my sons doesn't like to talk about his daddy now because I think it's too painful for him. And he didn't come to any of our shows. But the other son, the eldest boy, the boy who was 18 the day his daddy was murdered, um, would have came to me with me to services that were going on afterwards in the army camp because of the death and that. And my daughter loves talking about her daddy. She's the spitting image of her daddy. And she has a son of 12. And I was out shopping one day and I met this woman and she says, I don't need to ask who he is. <laughs> he's Patsy's scratch on. Just he's double, you know, he's double. But um, I don't think that the, he actually loved his work. Patsy had his own business of a mobile fruit and vegetable van. And then that wasn't viable after a while. And he, he didn't have a, a a training to do anything specific. I mean, he wasn't an electrician or a plumber or anything like that. So he took the only job that was going, and that was in Fort George. And he loved it. He greatly loved it. And he got on well with everybody that worked there. And he wouldn't leave when the when the warnings went into the paper. He said, they're, they're not putting me out of my home, or they're not putting me out of my job, you know. But they got their way at, at the end of, you know. Kathleen and Anne, you, you can see the Theatre of Witness is what it's called. It's on YouTube, isn't it? YouTube, and it's in the Playhouse in Derry. If you go onto the Playhouse website, you can see quite a lot more information I about workshops I've and seen stories. that production on, on YouTube. It's uh, really deeply moving. Um, I also did a podcast with the yeah. two of you, Guardians Jeez. of Flame. Yeah. Um, it's very good. Um, it is very good. As are all <laughs> the other podcasts and the documentary. Um, made by Josh Eves here. Josh Eves, Frass Hands, did all the Guardians of Flame stuff. Couldn't do it without them. very relaxed in that. That day was butter, butter cold. Do you remember? It was, it was, it was COVID and we were all cold. In, in, yeah. a, in an old church, the only place we could find that would let us come was a, in a, a little old yeah, church getting renovated. And yeah. 
was it freezing, was but it was a good day. It was good. Yeah. Well, um, today, in some ways, I suppose, as a day of reflection, is about remembering the pain. And we've heard of what a good man Patsy was and what you lost. Um, and thank you, Kathleen, for sharing your story. And and we've heard uh, about your story to a little degree, Anne. I mean, your I, your story is amazing when you tell all of it it's amazing and but we've also in both of you um, seen the hope that we're not destined to live the past forever and um, thank you for giving us hope tonight so let's give them a big round of applause